0: welcome to liquid church audio the message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas liquidchurch.com living water for a thirsty generation now we're live on the web Welcome to iGod, which is our current series in which we are attempting to kind of rediscover a fresh and accurate picture of who God is this Christmas. And it's really based on the idea that our popular view of God, our culture's picture of what God is like is actually more distorted than we might realize. In fact, last week we actually suggested that many of us have God in a box, kind of held captive to our own ideas, projections, and agendas versus the biblical revelation of who he truly is. I shared with you Time Magazine's recent survey of, of how we view God. And there are really four prevailing perspectives that they had most Americans have of God. The first is called the authoritarian God. That is about a third of Americans believe God is deeply involved in daily life and world events. But he's mainly angry. Angry. He is kind of an authority, and he's kind of ready to just punish those who break the law. It kind of gives rise to this kind of cop-around-the-corner image of God. He's someone to fear, primarily punitive. Now, we did our own informal poll right here in this room at all of our services, online. We asked people to log on, and we discovered that 24%, a full quarter of everyone here online on the Internet, relate to this authoritarian view of God. One person wrote in their comments that he views God this way because my father was that way towards me. So sometimes we take our cues from the parental or authoritarian figures we have in our lives growing up and project that onto God. Now the second view was the benevolent God. And almost 23% of Americans believe God is involved in daily life, but he's mainly a positive force. He is very unwilling to punish. He's mainly just kind of kind heart. He's kind of like a sweet old Santa, you know, soft, someone to hug, like a nice grandfather. He's very giving. And actually 48%, almost half of the people um, subscribe to that view. And one of you wrote, said, I actually see my God as my daddy who loves me, who gives me gifts, but also disciplines me, which is interesting there. Now, C and D, the critical view of God and the distant view of God, we're going to get to those next week, but we want to focus on those first two A and B, because some of you couldn't make up your mind honestly and choose just one. Some of you uh, did a combo of views. There were a lot of options. You could be like A and D or you know B and C and whatever. But far and away, the most overwhelming combination of perspectives people listed was A and B, authoritarian and benevolent. And that's revealing because there is a definite tension there. Are they at conflict or are they integrated? How you view those qualities of God has more of an impact than you probably realize. See, a lot of times we favor a view of God that actually simply reinforces our own agendas and opinions. So we summon God to our corner, depending on which like cultural camp you're in. Um, you know, so you've know, you heard like religious conservatives. Religious conservatives would emphasize the authoritarian God. He's kind of like ready to drop the hammer, all the bad things happening in our world. Or if you're more kind of liberal, you emphasize the, the benevolence of God. He's very kind, he's tolerant, he's kind of giving. So if you're right wing or left, we tend to emphasize the qualities which are most in line with how we view the world. Open-minded and progressive or restrictive and condemning. And the tragedy of that is that we come to see God not actually as he is, but as we'd prefer him to be, which is tragic. And really the cause of so much strife in our world. We saw this last week in Paul's letter to the Romans. We're kind of anchoring this entire series in the book of Romans. And in Romans 1, Paul noted how the believers actually of Rome inverted this divine order of things. He said, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. Not the revelation of God, but the reflection of man. It's up to me. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That is, they said, I am the ultimate reference point for reality. For what's true in this world, what is noble, what is right, I the creature, not the creator, I call the shots. I God. God reflected in my image instead of me reflecting His. And the idea that Paul is getting at is that we actually shrink this incredible, all-powerful, transcendent God, we actually shrink him down to our size, kind of, and then when he reveals himself, we actually put him and stuff him in our little box so that he can stay in there safely and fit our labels, our agenda, our notions of right and wrong. Our ideas of what love is or who deserves judgment. And the surprising part, Paul said, is that this actually... Makes God angry, but not human angry, not that active, hostile, going to get you kind of anger we think of from a human perspective. Rather, Paul says, God, in his wrath, not her, gave them over. He paradidomized them to their desires and their distorted thinking. Not active opposition, but almost like a resigned parental kind of I'm actually throwing my hands up and withdrawing from your life at your request and letting you do what you want. You run the show. I'll stay in the box that you have put me in. And the result was devastating. Paul actually said it was confusion. I like the way the message paraphrase renders Romans 1, verse 20 through 30. He said, what happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so there was neither sense nor direction in their lives. They pretended to know it all but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. This idea of idolatry, we shrink God down to our image. So God said in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And it wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen smeared with filth filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the small G God they made instead of the God who made them. And and folks, that's what happens when the revelation of God is suppressed and we elevate ourselves, the creature, over our creator. We exchange the divine revelation for human reflection and God withdraws and the result is devastating. All kinds of evil and ruin pours out into our world, writes Paul. He says this, he says, Worse followed, refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused. They abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men, all lust, no love, and then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love, godless and loveless wretches. You notice the result of the godless life? Paul says, we become loveless. That is, it starts affecting our relationships with one another. In Paul's example, right, in every area. Paul's example is sex, for instance. He's like confusion and ruin. And all of a sudden, well, you exist for my pleasure to be used, to, to please me. I get to exploit you because that's what happens when worship I, God, God in my image. He begins resembling us. And he likes all the things we like. And he judges all the things we judge. Many of you identified with Anne Lamott's incisive observation that you can be certain you've created God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal, right-wing or left. We start pointing fingers... And say, who's the problem here? What's the problem in the world? You know, it's them. It's the gays. No, it's the neoconservatives. No, it's it, it's the single moms. It, no, it's the rich. The rich. They're beaten, No, it's the poor. No, it's the religious right. No, it's the liberal left. See, in the absence of divine judgment, which actually is holy and just, we offer human judgment, which is actually biased and skewed and petty, and we look at the world through cracked lenses. Tough stuff. Romans one, the judgment of God on people who conform him to their own image instead of us conforming to his. Now, I want to invite you to open up with me to Romans chapter 2 because this is where it gets interesting and hopeful Something incredibly unexpected happens here in the second chapter. If you notice the headings of these passages, they're pretty intimidating, right? It's like God's wrath against mankind. Again, he evokes that authoritarian image. And in chapter 2, you see it starts with this title. It says God's righteous judgment. And so you assume you're like, oh, gosh, why did I come? Here It go. Here we go. <laughs> this is why I don't like religion in the Bible. <laughs> here comes this muscular, authoritarian, punitive deity who is responsible for promoting condemnation and judgment in people. Now read this with me, Romans 2, first four verses. Look what Paul writes there. Just watch this. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? And all of a sudden... Paul throws us this curveball. Because it's like, what in the world is, are these titles? God's judgment, his wrath. And this phrase, God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. What are they doing together? <laughs> I mean, judgment and, judgment and kindness can't coexist, can they? These are opposites, right? God is either, we all grew up in school, right? It's either A or B. He's either angry or benevolent. <laughs> he's either the cop around the corner, he's authoritarian, or he's sweet old Santa. He's benevolent and kindly, patient, a bowl full of jelly, right? <laughs> We set these up as contrasting and competing qualities. A dichotomy, opposing perspectives. They can't coexist. It's really the tyranny of the or. Authoritarian, eh? Or benevolent. And Paul's like, no. Think a bigger thought. The God of the Bible who has personally revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ is a lot bigger than these restrictive little boxes that you have him placed in. Paul's like, can this God possibly, is it possible that he transcends your labels and your finite thinking? Your limited understanding, for instance, of what authority actually is. Like when I say the word authority, what do you think of, right? Red flashing lights, kind of, you know, that kind. Could God be more, could authority be more than that? Or on the other hand, what true tolerance really means. I know we all have this kind of, you know, wishy-washy of your tolerance. They're like, well, it's good for you, it's good for you, it's good for me. There's no right, there's no wrong. It's just kind of, let's just be tolerant. Is it possible, Paul's saying, that this God could at once be both completely just and utterly, scandalously loving and accepting of people in their brokenness and flaws? Is it possible for him to be, there's that word again, holy? Holy other, not like us, not like me, not like you. He's far above us and yet imminent. He is close as the breath we breathe. He knows the hairs on our head. He's intimately involved in the details of our lives. Think a new thought, says Paul. I dare you not to succumb to the tyranny of the or and rather embrace the genius of the and. How many of you have heard that phrase before? The genius of the and. Some of you business people might know this. This was a phrase introduced a few years ago by Jim Collins. He's a business author. He wrote a book called Good to Great, Built to Last. And he writes about business and leadership, stuff like that. And uh, he wrote this book, Built to Last, actually, about companies that are world class, like the upper echelon of companies. What makes them distinctive and what they do differently that makes them so effective and actually stand out? from other businesses that are just mediocre. And one of the big distinctives that Collins discovered in his research is that those standout companies refuse to think based on or thinking. He said that was the tyranny of the or. In other words, they will refuse to think like, well, we can either be this or this. We can't be both. Instead, he said, they embrace what he calls the genius of the and. Apple is a great example of this. That is, when Steve Jobs and Apple came on the scene in the world of computing, they said, hey, what's going to make us different? What is going to make us distinctive from Microsoft or Dell or the other thousands of computer companies already making desktops and software? And what they noticed is that most computer companies, when it came to function and design, viewed it through the tyranny of the ore. That is, you can either have a computer that is functional or elegant in its design, but you can't have both. Hence, the original PC, right? Which to this day, this is an emblem of raw functionality, right? It is a square box, and it comes in two colors, gray and dirt tan. (laughs) It is clunky, it is unimaginative, it is uninspired, but it's got a lot of buttons, and it's effective. Gets the job done. They're like, if you want to focus on design like our style, alright, well you can do that but you're going to compromise in terms of functionality. You can have functionality or design, take your pick. And we're going to go with function because we don't we think people actually don't care that much how things look but just want something that works. To which Steve Jobs said, why? Why must they pick? Why must computers be this or this? That's the tyranny of the or. Who says they can't be both? Both powerful and effective in their processing and elegant and intuitive in their design. Why not think different. That actually became the ad campaign for Apple for a while. You remember this? Kind of featured like Einstein, Mandela, Picasso, with their slogan, think different. Why not think a bigger thought and embrace the genius of the end, which looks something like this. A small razor-thin device with precisely one button. And when they unveiled that, the PC world laughed. They were like "What? What you gotta be kidding me? One button? Who's going to buy that? I mean, it's cool, it's shiny, woo, it's sleek, but does that thing work? I mean, is that functional? You're telling me people are going to use that kind of thing in their everyday lives? Steve Jobs is like, I don't know, why don't we let them decide? And the rest, of course, is history. Apple selling its 110th million iPod this past fall. See, humans are hardwired to see contrasting qualities as incompatible. There's functionality or design. There's authority or benevolence. There's wrath or tolerance. Judgment and kindness, that does not compute. You can be both at the same time. Can you? And this is what Paul's alluding to as he introduces the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's like, let me tell you about the authority of God, and I'll begin with the crux of the matter. This God who made the universe is first and foremost benevolent, a God of kindness, tolerance, and patience. Terrible authority. He created everything, laid out the seas, the moral boundaries around which your life will actually be lived in a healthy fashion. But He doesn't wish any man or woman, no matter how far away from Him, that they would perish. A God of terrible authority over you and two, and more loving and generous towards people than you can imagine. And it's like, well, how do we know this? Because that is how God revealed himself when he visited our planet in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. This is the opening chapter. It's on page 736. And this is critical, folks, because uh, this describes Jesus' arrival to our world. And I want you to see the genius of the and here at work. Get your pen out. Click that for me. Let's read it together. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You've heard that at Christmas time. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. He's spectacular. And what makes him spectacular? Who came from the Father. Let's read this phrase together. Full of grace and truth. I want you to circle the most earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting word here in the entire gospel. (laughs) A-N-D. And. Three letters. It's tiny. It's a conjunction. It's a throwaway word, you think. It's insignificant. Guess what? It makes all the difference in the world. If you truly want to understand who this God really is, John says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling amongst. That is, in the person of Jesus, God personally stepped down into history, into our world, at Christmas, the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's like, although it was 2,000 years ago, John writes, he's like, we personally witnessed this, God in the flesh. We have seen his glory. We saw it with our own eyes. The glory of the one and only, that's the only begotten Son of God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, the genius of the and. And almost to underscore this like earth-shattering marriage of these two seemingly competing characteristics, John repeats again in verse 17. Look at it. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what's being contrasted here are that these two ideas that seem at first glance like polar opposites, right? I mean, truth, it's like, what, what, what is the truth? That God, actually, as the ultimate authority, actually does have standards. As the creator and ultimate authority in the universe, he has established limits and moral boundaries for his creatures to live by. That is his right as our creator. And when we flout them or kind of snub him or say, you know what, I'm God, and we go our own way, he actually has a word for it. He calls it sin. Ugly word, don't like it, ah. And the truth is, Paul's like, we are All in the same boat. I'll put it this way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of our creator. That's truth. There is more sin and brokenness in our lives than we'd like to admit. Religious people, secular people, atheists, church people, conservative, liberal, gay, straight, doesn't matter. We all done it, Paul's like. We all have sinned. And you know what? That truth is the main reason we like to keep God in here. (laughs) To avoid having to face that reality, (laughs) that fundamental truth of who we are in the wake of God's authority and holiness. That's truth. And yet, this is a God who is also full of, circle the word, grace. Greek word for this is charis. This is a word that you and I will not have a point of reference for. In Romans 2, Paul uses the word kindness, benevolence, patience, tolerance. This kindness is not some wishy-washy, warm and fuzzy kind of kindness as our world conceives it. Like, oh, God is kind. That's nice. This is a fierce, full-throttled, loving kindness in the wake of outstanding failure. When someone blows it, when someone offends you... You go out, it's the guy who he, he, he takes his key out and he keys the side of your car and you run up to him and you put your arms out and you hug him and give him a ride home. And somebody like, what? Exactly. There is no point of reference for it. It is radical love in the wake of wrongdoing. When we blow it, when we snub God or deserve at least, we are embraced. Grace kindness tolerance patience we are actually not judged nor punished as we deserve why because the authority above all things is benevolent he loves us not with a human kind of warm and fuzzy love an otherworldly divine love called grace in those two concepts grace and truth at first glance seem incompatible don't they as if they can't coexist. Well, it's grace or truth, right? He's authoritarian or he's benevolent. God's either the cop around the corner or his sweet old Santa. I mean, if you have truth, think about this. It's like, but wait, if you have truth, think about it. God has the authority to 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 establish moral absolutes for living, and anything like outside of that is, is, is sin. I mean, that seems intolerant. I mean, Tim, you've even said God doesn't tolerate sin. He punishes it. That's the opposite of grace, right? Paul says it's grace is kindness and tolerance. The two are incompatible. Truth or grace, the tyranny of the oar. To which God says, think again. Think different. I am sending you my son, Jesus Christ, so you can see and think a bigger thought. Instead of handcuffing me with the tyranny of the oar, my son is going to personally reveal to you the genius of the and. He will reveal me as I fully am a God of grace and truth. And it will make all the difference in your life if you let it. Because when you see grace and truth in action, it is stunning. It will change your mind about me. And it will change your life if you let it. Let me show you the genius of the end in action. Now, skip a few pages to John chapter 8. And this is a live encounter now. Now we're going to get live. That really defined Jesus' ministry on earth. It is a revelation. It is revealing God who is not held captive to our restrictive categories. It is a revealing of God as the literal embodiment of grace and truth in perfect, dynamic tension. Let's read this together. John 8. We'll just start at verse 3 there. It says... um, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So she was sleeping with another man. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 9, verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. The cop around the corner would be a fitting way to describe the Pharisees or the uber-conservative religious scholars of Jesus' day. They literally were considered law enforcement. They were experts in the Old Testament law, the Torah. This was the law of Moses. And they functioned, they considered themselves to be the religious police. They believed, this is what the Pharisees believed, that God had laid down the law, right, he gave it to Moses, and he deputized them to uphold it. It was their life's mission to find violators of the law and prosecute them to the fullest extent that the law would allow. And that was their understanding of what God was like, authoritarian, judge and jury. And so that's what they gave themselves to, law enforcement. And in Jesus' day, they were the religious cops whose job was literally to catch people with their pants down. According to John, that's exactly the position they found this woman, and she was caught in the act, en flagrante—a woman caught in adultery. And, and you guys know this: what happens when you see a cop? And, you, and, and you're, I mean, maybe we don't have something that you know dramatic, but maybe you, maybe you sped here on the way to church, and you know when you go whipping by that corner, and then you see it, and he's like nested in the bushes with his little gun, and you go whoom, right past him, and you're like, oh, whoom, you know, and you jam on, you go from 68 to 41. Like the cop can hear you whistling, right? Or like, when you're talking on the phone, you're like, no, just scratch my ear. No, I just, you know. And, uh, and this dread comes over you. This, this like, fear. And th- these Pharisees were the last people in the world this woman wanted to see. Conversely, this, this woman was the first person they were hoping to run into. A lawbreaker. So they could do their job. Cop around the corner. Sitting there with the speeding gun, or in this case rocks and they bring her before jesus and they said teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery and in the law moses commanded us to stone such women do you notice the phrase underlined? this caught in the act that's actually where we get our popular expression from right we caught in the oh you were caught in the act we got her the religious police and they're like sorry miss but uh you broke the law capital l and do you know what uh, the law calls for, actually, in the case of adultery? You're actually going to wish you got some points on your record. Because we all have an rock party. Death by stoning. That was what the Torah, the Old Testament law, prescribed as a punishment for adultery. Now, let's make this live. Each of you were given a rock on your way in. Can you pick that out? Take it. Thank you for not throwing it yet, by the way, at me. Sermon sucks. To throw, <laughs> right, pick that up. I want you to feel its heft in your hand. I want. Let's, in fact, let's do something good. Well, I want you to loosen up your shoulder. You loosen that up, just kind of like, all right. We do a little stretch in here. Now you're like, okay. Now we have in church. This is good. Got my rock out there. You got it. See, the Pharisees, they embraced the singular vision of God as authoritarian. And that God, his main business was exclusively law enforcement. And so they would have grabbed this lady, the lawbreaker, threw her right down here in front of all of us, actually, in the public square, and said, gather around, everyone. There we go. We got them. Time for a rock party. And there was a sense that they took a special delight and satisfaction in doing this. And see, this is honestly one of the reasons many non-believers are repulsed by Christianity, even today. Because although we may not literally throw rocks anymore, we still have the religious police of our day who feel it is their special calling to throw stones, to judge and condemn and label and denounce. And, and we don't chuck rocks literally, but some Christians, it's like it's my spiritual gift to criticize and condemn and highlight the failings of everyone else while remaining oblivious to my own. See, there was there was one little detail of, of the law enforcement that they overlooked. See, when the Pharisees said that the law of Moses commanded them to stone such women, that was, that was true, but it was a, a half-truth. They were referencing Deuteronomy 22, which reads, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You notice they they, they left out one little detail. It takes two to tango. <laughs> They were selective in their enforcement overlooked any details that might potentially implicate one of their own. And see, this is what happens whenever human creatures take it upon themselves to enforce divine judgment. And that's what Paul's highlighting back here in Romans 2. He says, you, therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. You point a finger and you've got three pointing right back at you because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's truth. And into this standoff, everyone, get your arm up, get it ready, get it kind of tense, you're ready to go, hurl fastball. Jesus walks in. The, the one and only, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. And um, this is where they would have rubbed their hands. Because they suspected Jesus of being a softy. A softy on sin. And so they say, they said, Well, now what do you say, Jesus? And they were using this question as a trap. In order to have a basis for accusing him. See, they actually had a bigger fish to fry than just this woman caught in adultery. They were after Jesus who claimed to be God in the flesh. And the penalty for that wasn't sticks or stones. It was a tree crucifixion. And so they've set a trap here for Jesus. And do you you see this? It is based on the tyranny of the oar. They are setting it up. They're like, Jesus, if you're God, reveal what kind of God you are. Because you can either condemn her, flex your authority, and join our rock party, or let her go and show your benevolence and disrespect the moral law. Either or. And it's rigged. Because if Jesus doesn't condemn her, he's going to be seen as condoning adultery. But if he throws a rock, he'll confirm that God truly is just like the Pharisees. Compassionless, intolerant, punitive, just authoritative. And where's the love in that? You've got two choices, God. You can embrace either grace, let the lawbreaker go free, or truth, join a rock party. You can't have both because God is either hard or he's soft. Authority or benevolence, justice or mercy. Take your pick. And what Jesus does is simply astonishing. A revelation, a revealing of God for all of us. Because rather than fall for the trap, the tyranny of the or, Jesus illustrates the genius of the and. We have seen the glory of the one and only God who came from the Father full of grace. And truth. Who is the full embodiment of authority and benevolence, of truth and grace, kindness, love, and forgiveness in the wake of flagrant wrongdoing. The genius of the and is in Jesus' challenge where he says, okay, everyone rocks up. Let him who's without sin... Throw the first stone. And the table suddenly turned because even the most judgmental Pharisee knew it. He couldn't dare claim to be sinless. They knew in their heart of hearts everyone has fallen short. And the irony here, folks, is that within that crowd, around this woman, there actually was one person who was without sin. And actually would have been perfectly justified in throwing the first rock. And what does he do? Because he is the full embodiment of truth and grace. Only Jesus, the sinless son of God, he was God. Full authority, full moral perfection, and yet so full of love for his creatures that he would voluntarily take onto himself. All of the condemnation and punishment that we deserve. That's literally what Christ came to do. To die on a cross in our place. To fulfill the demands of a just and holy God. That is what we mean when we say Jesus died for my sins. We accept the truth of who we are in the the shadow of his authority. I'm a sinful man. And yet we put our trust in the grace that he offers. I don't condemn you. That's literally what this woman did. Jesus offers her his hand, not clenched in human wrath, but extended in divine grace. Who's left? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. The hand of grace. And something more important, because he offers it without sacrificing truth. What does he instruct her to do? What's he say after he pulls her up? Go now and what? Leave your life of sin. How you're living is not right. This is an offense to your father. This is brokenness, my child, and it will reap death and destruction in your life and others. But I love you. That's the genius of the and, folks. See, only one who's without sin, truth, and who took the full brunt of judgment Do each one of us. Grace is in a position to actually offer forgiveness and pardon, no matter what you've done or where you have been. I don't care if you have not known God for your entire life, you've been angry at God, He is not burning with anger at you. There is no rock. His hand is empty. There's no rock waiting for you. There's only grace. And so we are invited to come and take the hand of Jesus, this God who came to this world full of grace and truth, and put our hand in his, actually place our trust in his sacrifice on our behalf so that we can experience this amazing thing called grace. That is the distinctive of divine love that distinguishes everything Jesus Christ from all the other small g gods of our world. There is no other distinctive. Grace is the greatest distinctive of Christianity because there is no other religion in the world that dares to make the claim that they have a corner on this truth, that while we were still in our sins, God died for the infidels. Not to throw rocks at the infidels, but actually to sacrifice himself to spare those he loves. That's the gospel, folks. That's the good news. That although God is full of authority, He is the giver of law, and He is the ultimate moral truth. He is also extravagantly benevolent, more loving, even to the point of laying down His life for those who want no part of Him. The genius of the and. And did you notice the order which Scripture emphasizes? Full of what? Grace first and truth. How does how does Jesus offer it to the woman? What does he say first to the woman? What's he offer? Grace. I have no condemnation for you. And truth. Now go. And sin no more. Grace followed truth in Jesus' entire ministry and life. And that is instructive for us. Because as followers of Jesus, our great challenge in this world, that in many ways, folks, does not know its right hand from its left, is to lead with grace and ground it in truth. In my opinion, that honestly is why the Christian church has lost its voice on so many burning issues of our day. Because we lead with truth. We, 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 we get the order backwards, and we emphasize the judgment of God. We kind of raise our rocks and our voices to condemn all the ways that others are blowing it and falling short. And, and, and you know how we come off? We, we, as Pharisees. As self-righteous hypocrites. Oblivious to our own failings and need for grace. But when When you lead with grace, when you extend kindness, tolerance, and patience to those who are even caught in the act of their sin, that is life-changing. It doesn't happen in this world. The guy who keys your car, you deck him, you don't hug him, and take him out for dinner. You know that, right? When you lead with grace, it changes people's lives. You know that? Or as Paul asked rhetorically in Romans 2.4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Are you so truth-obsessed that you actually hate how much God loves broken people even while they're still in their sins? See, when you show kindness... See, the people who the world would label your enemies, when you return blessing for a curse, it's like, well, if that does not happen in in the kingdom of this world, yeah, exactly, it's kingdom of God kind of stuff. I don't condemn you, but what you're doing is not right. You, you You are defying the Creator's boundaries, and it's going to bring shame and destruction and ruin to your life and the life of others. I mean, how about the woman whose husband you stole? Where is the grace in that? Now go. And sin no more. I have the authority to tell you that. Open armed grace and uncompromising truth. The genius of the end. The glory of the one and only Jesus Christ. The God who is perfectly both. How about you? I am curious where you're at right now. Have you embraced that truth? Are you, are you comfortable? Are you at home living in grace? Or are, or are you out of balance? Em, you know, kind of emphasizing one, to, to, to maybe to the neglect of the other. See, the danger is that every person here listening online will settle for an incomplete picture of God. You need both to follow Jesus. Do you know what you call, easy way to remember, do you know what you call grace without truth? Grace without truth is license. See, if there is no moral authority, do whatever you want. You have license. Just write your own ticket. That's where you get the word licentiousness. That is, if God is only loving and he lacks moral authority, then you do whatever you feel like because he's sweet old Santa. And it doesn't really matter if you're naughty or nice. Do whatever you want because we all get the same candy cane anyway. That's a distortion of who God is. On the other hand, you know what you call truth without grace? Legalism. And sadly, there are plenty of Christians who have settled for that false religion. As if faith were primarily a matter of religious rule-keeping, focusing on our own spiritual successes and kind of highlighting others' failures as if God's love was something to be earned, as if judgment was the point of salvation. That's not what Jesus died for, so you could keep a scorecard of your rights and others' wrongs to prove you're worth loving. You are worthy of the love of an infinite God for one reason— Jesus Christ died for you. And he loves you just as you are. In all your brokenness and your shame, and you can take his hand and you can trust him. Because he doesn't have a rock in it. But maybe you do. What do you have in your hand? Hold up your rock a moment. I want to speak to two kinds of people here. Maybe you have never made the decision to trust Jesus. There are lots of good reasons for that. He has been misrepresented by many of us who claim to follow him. But today, you have heard the truth and grace reveal that God is not angry. He has no rock in his hand waiting for you. But you need to reach out and you need to take it. That is how you become a Christian. You first acknowledge the truth of who you are. I have sinned. And by faith, you accept the grace offered by Jesus who forgives any sins. If that is you today... I am going to invite you forward in the next moment to come up towards the stage and take your rock and give it to Jesus and say, I will follow you. I need to follow a God like that. I trust you with my life. The second group I want to invite forward are those who already are followers of Jesus. But maybe you've been only following with one part of the equation. Maybe you've been living actually without any limits, forsaking truth. As if Jesus' sacrifice means I can do whatever I please because I think I'm forgiven anyway and, you know, he'll forgive me, whatever. That's actually disgracing grace, what Christ did for you. Or maybe you've been living without grace and you know what? You're like, oh, dude, I need actually a few more. Can I borrow yours? Because I got a whole handful of rocks. For the people in my life who are falling short and blowing it, I got a little list, and you've kind of fallen for this, this distortion that Christian life is primarily about judgment for others, for non-Christians, for liberals, for enemies, for your spouse, for whoever is falling short, not following the rules in your opinion and making life uncomfortable. You've got your rocks at the ready. And you know what Jesus is inviting you to do? Lay them down. You know why? Jesus doesn't need any more cops. It's his job alone to judge. And he invites you to step into grace. Maybe that is your biggest gift this Christmas. To actually surrender your judgmental spirit towards others. God has no condemnation for you. Would you be willing to let go of your judgment and condemnation for others? You come forward. Come forward down the center aisle with your rock. David and the team are going to come up and they're going to play a beautiful song. And I want to wreck it. I want to absolutely ruin it. It is called Only Grace. And when the band begins playing, I want, we're going to start with Jess, Mary, Joe. You're going to come forward down the center aisle and throw your rock in the garbage can, maybe for the first time, and you do that in a way of putting your trust in Jesus and accepting his offer of forgiveness. Or if you're already a follower of Christ, maybe this is a renewed commitment this Christmas to start fresh and come clean if, you, if you've forsaken truth or laid down your rocks if you've been graceless. Go ahead and ruin the song. Guys, I love you. The band is great. But do you know what's even sweeter in the ears of God? The sound of rocks being thrown out and giving your life to follow the one and only Jesus Christ who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wherever you are, you are invited to come. Let's pray together. Jesus, we just thank you right now, God. You are a God who can be trusted. Thank you, Father. You're a God who extends a hand in our failure and invites us into the new reality called grace. Thank you, for perfectly balancing justice and mercy. As a God who is full of authority and yet this radical benevolence called grace. Thank you for this invitation to give you our lives. We follow you now. Amen.